When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. One of the most fundamental aspects of modern life is that much of it is lived on and through social media. We create profiles, post pictures, update stories, and even find new careers and lovers on various sites and apps. But is all this good for us? Our always online way of living has been called into question for quite some time now, with many people, young and old, finding themselves burned out and disconnected in a world with no shortage of connections. So what does this prevalence of social media mean for our society at large? This question is one of the starting points for my guest today, Matthew Flissfetter, in his new book, Algorithmic Desire, Toward a New Structuralist Theory of Social Media. While he is curious about the effects of social media on society, he also spends much of the book trying to flip the question around and ask, what does the structure of our society mean for social media? Phyllis Fetter is interested in thinking of social media in its social, political, and economic context, seeing the form our current social media takes as a gateway into broader social and economic structures. This broad Marxist vision is brought together with the theories of subjectivity developed in recent critical theory, particularly with Slavoj Žižek, to better understand both the way social media hooks us into exploitative mechanisms but it also gives us some off-ramps for possible resistance. Flissfetter is no Luddite. Not only is he himself an enthusiastic user of social media, but his critique here is meant as a course correction rather than an all-out condemnation. If social media today produces alienation rather than true connection, then what does that tell us about society more broadly? And more provocatively, what does it mean for broader social critique to take the social and social media seriously? Matthew Flissfetter is an Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Communications at the University of Winnipeg. He is also the author of Postmodern Theory and Blade Runner and The Symbolic, The Sublime, and Slavoj Žižek's Theory of Film. And, of course, you can follow him on Twitter. Matthew Flissfetter, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thanks for having me here. 
Yes, yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of these episodes. So I'm wondering if you could maybe introduce yourself to listeners and tell them what your work and research tends to focus on. Sure, thanks. Uh, so I'm an associate professor of rhetoric and communications at the University of Winnipeg. Um, my interests are pretty much you know, various within the realms of critical and cultural theory, cultural studies, media studies, film theory. Um, I've written on cyberpunk and sci-fi. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm working largely within, I would say, the, the arena of the Marxian theory of ideology, Lacanian psychoanalytic theories of subjectivity. And I'm particularly drawn right now to German idealism and the work of Hegel, largely through the influence of uh, people like Slavoj Žižek, um, Anna Kornblue, Todd McGowan, and so forth. Yeah, so jumping right off of that intro, um, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was your understanding of ideology. So um, the major figures I see kind of working throughout this book, you're working kind of in the shadow of figures like Louis Althusser, Jacques Lacan, and perhaps most centrally, Slavoj Žižek. Um, and one of the definitions you kind of put out uh, near the beginning of the book uh, is that ideology is a imaginary relationship to the real conditions of existence. So I'm wondering if you could give us kind of a preliminary understanding of what ideology ideology is for you um, and how it functions in this book. Sure. No, that's a great question. Actually, I failed to mention that one of the other key figures who's influenced me is Frederick Jameson. And Jameson actually has a really, really great way of thinking about ideology. And he puts it somewhere that now, again, working within um, specifically Marxian approach, that if we take what Marx argued about the contradictions and the crises of capitalism, if we take uh, what Marx argued about the exploitation of the working class and so forth, if so if we assume that these things are true, the problem is, why is it that so many people continue to insist on resisting the language of their liberation? So I think that by and large, what the Marxist theory of ideology is trying to develop is an understanding of why it is or how it is that the people whose interests are being served by the, the, the theory of their emancipation from exploitation, from oppression, why is it that so many people continue to insist on resisting that language of their liberation? So for me, as I understand it, the theory of ideology has developed in various different forms through various different um, theorists that are canonical now, uh, the work of George Lukács, um, Antonio Gramsci, um, the work of Frankfurt School critical theorists like Theodore Adorno, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, Max Horkheimer, and so forth. Um, they have all been attempts to try to answer this very central question. Now, my interest, especially in this book, especially building off of the work of people like Jameson and Zizek and Lacan, and, and, all, and really responding to Althusser, is trying to think about, um, so beyond sort of the standard ideas of ideology as a kind of a false consciousness, beyond the idea that people are just ideologically duped into believing the ruling ideology, trying to understand 
how people make sense of how how we grapple with the conditions that we're living, especially grappling with the conditions that we can identify as being exploited and oppressed in different ways. So this is where I think Louis Althusser's theory of ideology really comes into play and his conception of ideological interpolation, where he argues that uh, individuals are interpolated by ideology as subjects. And in his famous thesis that ideology represents an imaginary relationship of people to their real conditions of existence, he's very much relying on a Lacanian understanding of the way that ideology grasps us through our fantasy connection to to the real, to um, 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 what Lacan calls the real. Now, I think that there's, you know, there's one way of thinking of it um, in terms of how we, in, you know, in the vernacular, think about imaginary and real conditions, right? So imaginary as some kind of, you know, fantasy that we're daydreaming, that we're escaping um, reality. But in the more specific Lacanian sense, um, I think, and this comes through, through Zizek's work, we start to understand that before we're even um, engaged into our everyday reality, the way that our subjection or the way that our subjectivity is formed is via connection to, um, uh, I guess, kind of the way we think about fantasy and fantasy in the Lacanian psychoanalytic sense, not fantasy as a form of escapism, but fantasy really as the way in which we relate to or understand forms of enjoyment, forms of desire. So that um, the fantasy is actually this the, the, the primordial way in which we re- relate to, connect to reality. And then the, the problem of the real here is when we think about our everyday relationship to reality, how we understand um, forms of limit, contradiction, crises, gap, um, and how the fantasy comes to fill that in. Now, one of the things that I take from Jameson, and I think that this is very important, is that in the Althusserian theory of ideology, ideology is an imaginary relationship to real conditions of existence. What Jameson points out in his early writing on postmodernism is that Althusser kind of skips over the dimension of the Lacanian symbolic to the level of, of language representation and also interpretation. And what Jameson tries to identify is that if we return to the dimension of representation, if we return to the dimension of the symbolic, then we can see how it's possible for particular kinds of interpretation to actually impact the ideological conditions of our connections to reality so that it's possible to make a change. And this, I think, is very important if we're thinking about um, historical change and transformation, how various different types of interpretations help to make a, a change, a transformation in our real conditions of existence. I hope that that makes sense. Yeah, um, you put a lot on the table. So uh, you brought up a few things that kind of lead right into my next question, Frederick Jameson and also uh, social transformations. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, uh, so this book is broadly trying to think of uh, contemporary social media as a metaphor for late capitalist society. Um, And in this, I think you're kind of picking up on a long tradition of trying to use various forms of media in that kind of metaphorical way. So before uh, going to social media in particular, I'm wondering if you could explain what it means to pick any form of media or medium as a metaphor for society, because, you know, you mentioned Jameson, who talked about footage or film. Um, you could go back to Lukács talking about novels um, all the way back. 
Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of explain that uh, metaphorical uh, connection between media and larger social dynamics. Sure. Thanks. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and so I think in the book here, I'm drawing on a number of sources. Um, first and foremost, I'll start in media theory, where so somebody like the, the media scholar Neil Postman, um, in his mid-80s book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he responds to the famous aphorism from Marshall McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, who said, we all know the medium is the message. And what, well, we're beginning with McLuhan, what McLuhan means by the medium is the message, in some ways we could say is that the form of representation is more important than the content of what's being represented. So that we can understand something about communication by looking at the form of communication and specifically the, the specific um, form of mediation, let's say from um, um, speech communication to radio, to television, to cinema, and to social media and the internet, that by studying the form of communication, we actually understand something more deeply or specifically about the content of communication. McLuhan famously puts it, for instance, that the you know the content of film is the is the play, or you know, and so on and so forth. So what Postman does is he takes McLuhan's medium as the message and he changes it, arguing that the medium is the metaphor, that the medium is a metaphor for the form of the society, and that we can understand something about the form of the society by examining the dominant form of communication, which for Postman was uh, television in the 1980s. Um, now, I disagree somewhat with Postman um, because I think that there's what's missing in his analysis is a um, uh, the Marxist understanding of the way in which the historical mode of production relates to the dominant form of communication. And therefore, for me, when I say that the medium is the metaphor, I'm also meeting not just a metaphor for the society, but also for the a metaphor for the dominant way of thinking and making sense of the world so that the medium becomes a metaphor for the, the form of the dominant ideology. Now, the other thing when, we, when we're thinking about how to understand what is the dominant medium at a particular given historical moment, we can go back to McLuhan in a way to think about the way that various other media, and when I say dominant, you know, just as you know, if we're talking about dominant mode of production, let's say, um, it's not as though we're, we're talking about the ex one dominant mode of production to the exclusion of other um, forms of production. So, for instance, in finance capital, we still have in parallel forms of, you know, agricultural, you know, industrial forms of production. And similarly with media, that we're talking about a dominant medium such as social media, it's not to say that we no longer rely on other forms of older media such as cinema, television, the newspaper, radio, and so forth. These all still exist in parallel with the dominant form of communication. But one way I think that we can understand what is the dominant form of communication is when we start to see um, how one particular form invades and helps to structure other forms of media. So, for instance, um, when um, the web page was becoming popular, we could see that the layout and the format of the newspaper was changing to mirror or model the layout of the of the web page, or we start to see on cable news stations the way that they start to mirror or um, 
integrate aspects of the internet and social media. So with the ticker across the bottom of the screen, or even uh, to include um, Twitter feeds on the screen, even in television sitcoms, we now start to see it's common to have, you know, text type um, appear on the screen so that we can look at it as if we're integrating aspects of person-to-person um, um, -person text communication and social media. So for me, social media has become the dominant mode of communication. Um, it, we can see this simply by the way that it's influencing various other forms of communication. Um, even if we think about, you know, how the trending topics on Twitter become, um, you know, what's considered newsworthy and not newsworthy uh, today. So now linking this back to um, Lacanian psychoanalysis, Lacan is very famous for talking about the role that the uh, uh, primordial metaphor plays in overall forms of representation. That we don't start thinking, we don't we don't start thinking and conceptualizing the world without the form of the representation. So that for me, media as a metaphor and social media specifically as a metaphor is actually a way of helping us to understand the dominant way of thinking, the dominant form of consciousness within the society. So understanding the way that the form of social media works through a structural analysis of social media, I think that it can help us to understand something much, broad, much more broadly about the way in which ideology works in today, contemporary 21st century capitalism. Yeah, so... Um... So we brought up uh, Fred Jameson a couple times. Um, and so Bex, uh, several decades ago, he claimed that film and footage were the kind of defining mediums of people's uh, experience uh, several decades ago. So I'm wondering, how does the shift from footage to social media reflect broader political and economic changes in the last few decades that you see? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And... I think that we can understand it, um, and I try to I try to put this I try to develop this idea in the book, and in some ways I'm still relying on older concepts in film and communication studies. If we think about even beginning with you know the some of the French film theory or British film theory in the late '60s and early '70s. There was a lot of work that was done on what film can teach us about the way that ideology and subjectivity work. So the famous work of the British screen theorists or the, the Lacanian and structuralist uh, film theories um, with the idea of integrating Althusser's idea of interpolation into the uh, form of spectatorship, the way that ideology works on the spectator by interpolating the spectator as an ideological uh, subject. Um, I think that that's uh, one way to think about how media impact us. And I think that that comes through in the way that film form and film narrative operates um, on spectators in a certain way. But I'm, here I'm a little bit more drawn to um, the cultural studies work of somebody like Stuart Hall. And specifically in Hall's uh, model of encoding and decoding. Now, it's important to remember that for Hall, when he develops his theory of encoding and decoding, so the idea that um, um, all media content begins um, by being encoded and the encoding of content 
relies on various different layers of production. So for instance, um, what are the, the dominant discourses that are being used to produce content? How does the technological infrastructure of particular media relate to the form of the content? How does the particular subject position of those producing content within um, the relations of social class, how does that all get integrated into the production of content? But then on the decoding side, audiences and viewers and users are also relying on a particular technological infrastructure, also relying on particular sets of discourses to decode and interpret and understand uh, the content. How does our own position within social relations of production, our class position, how does that impact the way in which we're interpreting or understanding the content of the media? This is something that Hall developed as a kind of a response to some of the screen theorists' argument that when we are spectators in the cinema, we are just ideologically, the, the ideology is zapped into the mind and we just get it. Hall argues that through decoding, depending on the discourses we use, depending on our social, our position within the social relations of production, we might not be interpolated as ideological sub subjects. There might, there's a possibility for failure of ideological interpretation. And in fact, in the, in, as Zizek argues, in psychoanalytic sense, that what we call hysteria is a form of ideological failure, that ideology has failed to interpolate the subject in some way. So Hall is trying to take account for this, and he develops, um, he has three different ways of thinking about failed, or not just failed, but three different ways of thinking um, decoding of media content. That is, there's a dominant hegemonic way of decoding it, where ideology is, you could say, zapped into the mind. There's a negotiated way where we might take some of the ideological content, but maybe we disagree with other ideological content. And then he says that there's an oppositional decoding where it's not that the the viewer or the audience misunderstands the content but that there's ideological disagreement with the content and i think that you know over time media researchers particularly you know you could say you know, commercial media researchers what their goal has been is um to as much as possible reduce forms of negotiated and oppositional decoding um on the side of the viewers. Now, where I think that social media is different from uh, film form, for instance, is that the, the, the pace of decoding and then re-encoding has actually increased quite substantially through the form of algorithmic media. That it's much easier through social media platforms today for social media companies to collect information and data about users so that they can better curate content to us specifically, so that it doesn't necessarily matter if we disagree or if we're, or if we're decoding in an oppositional way, the form of the medium in social media and algorithmic media more generally can keep us glued in a, a much a, in a much stronger way because the pace of um, decoding and then re-encoding actually is heightened so that it's even if the, the content being pre presented to us is counter hegemonic or counter ideological to the dominant ideology, it curates content to us that we're, that is more likely to interpolate us, to keep us glued in and locked in and contributing to the, to the, the platform and to the production of data as sort of the, you know, the, the, one of the main resources of the contemporary economy. Yeah. Moving right along. Um, you also put, uh, 
the development of social media in dialogue with a number of much broader historical forces. So for um, to start off, you argue that the form of social media that we have today is the product of uh, a combination of 90s techno-optimism, the dot-com crash, um, the 2008 fiscal crisis. Um, but then you also uh, show how social media has then in many ways produced some of these broader social movements and dynamics. So for example, you point out uh, with the 2011 and 12 Arab Spring uprisings, Twitter was huge for that. But then a few years later, there was a huge reactionary political backlash, most famously with the election of Donald Trump and the rise of the alt-right. So there's this way in which you're trying to uh, place social media not in kind of this vacuum of technological development, but really think about the way it is developed by and then develops larger social forces. Can you maybe speak to that history and that relationship you see between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess starting with the techno-optimism of the 1990s, um, and I guess one thing that I think studying media can do is it can help us to understand what I think is a central contradiction between capitalism and democracy. So we know the we know the the old story, right? That you know we couldn't have democracy without capitalism. That liberalism and capitalism um, supposedly helped to develop the democratic society that we are that we're that we're said to enjoy. That the development of the public sphere is a development that that comes out in in, uh, in parallel with the rise of the bourgeoisie as a class so that the development of capitalism couldn't have happened without the rise of modern mass media. And this is not, so this kind of understanding of this contradiction between democracy, and I say contradiction because one of the things we start to see in that media theorists uh, and scholars and political economists of media have been showing for decades is that in an unregulated uh, economy, it's possible for very few corporations to gobble up and control much of the media uh, that exists. So that rather than having a thriving democracy, what we have is uh, a narrow, the narrow perspective of the dominant capitalist uh, ideology. So I think that in the 1990s, when the internet was becoming popular, there was a lot of hope and optimism that with the rise of the internet, that the media sphere could be decentralized, that there could be sort of a renewed democracy or a renewed online digital public sphere that could challenge the dominance of capital and conglomeration that occurs within the media and entertainment complex. What we see then in the early 2000s, what we come to call Web 2.0, with the rise of social networking sites, I mean, people, you know, even as old as, you know, MySpace um, and and others, MSN Messenger and so forth. And then with the rise, of course, in the mid, uh, the middle of the first decade of 21st century with Facebook and then Twitter, we, and Google, I I forgot to mention, and Google uh, in the early 2000s, what we started to see is that in this space that we assume to be this, you know, huge open free-for-all is actually being given uh, a new type of structure being structured by these um, the the new huge media conglomerates um, that 
are so anybody who's going onto the internet today knows that you don't get access until you sign on through a Google or through a Facebook or through a Twitter account, and it provides um, it gives new structure to what was perceived to be an unstructured space of some kind of open and democratic, um, perhaps even um, anarchistic type of space where we could all engage each other. Um, now, I think that in some ways, the optimism of the early 90s was renewed in um, the, the, the early part of the second decade of the 21st century. So around, two, well, even a little before in 2009, with the, um, um, there was the, the uprising in Iran, but then with the rise of the so-called Arab Spring in late 2010 and early 2011, the, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement that began in September of 2011, there was this renewed, there seemed to be this renewed sense of hope that social media could play an important role in, um, in um, 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 political revolution or radicalism or advocacy. Um, and again, both, I, I think it's important to historicize or contextualize or periodize something like Occupy Wall Street against the background of the 2008, 2009, uh, or I say even beginning 2007, beginning in the, the housing market and the subprime mortgage crisis, the financial crisis that, that uh, really shook things up. Um, and it's in this context that people start going on to social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and using these spaces as a way to, uh, to organize and to rebel against the system. But it's interesting that in this period, a lot of the, the mainstream stories were less about the content of the uprisings and the protests and more about the, the role of social media. We heard a lot about Facebook revolutions or Twitter revolutions. And there was a, a lot of sort of utopian discussion about how we're taking back our democracy through social media platforms. Um, Okay, so I'm going to put that aside for a second and just just say that I think that this was really sort of intriguingly overturned with the uh, when people started to take notice of the way that the far right was making use of the same spaces for their own forms of advocacy and organization, even kind of like swarm forms of uh, online harassment and attack that we see the rise of the so-called alt-right, neo-reactionary movements. Um, and then, of course, the eventual um, election of Donald Trump as president of the United States in 2016. One thing I want to say quickly just also about Trump and the form of media is you can see just how much the you know, media plays a role in organizing dominant forms of consciousness. When liberal critics, for instance, look at Trump's tweets, he's now been kicked off, right? But when you look at Trump's tweets, it looks like this unformed, chaotic um, immature, um, you know, barbaristic, you know, form of communication. But I think that we could argue that Trump's tweets are actually appropriate to the form of Twitter in a sense that not appropriate, you know, in the sense that I agree with what he's saying, but I think that the way in which Trump was able to use the form of Twitter actually represents the form of thinking and consciousness that's made possible by that platform in the same way that there's a specific way of speaking that um, is required for radio communication, in the same way that there's a form of presentation that's required for television communication. There's one of my favorite jokes for one of my all-time favorite movies, Back to the Future, 
where Doc Brown, you know, has that, you know, that he says, you know, no wonder you're, he's talking about Ronald Reagan, no wonder your president has to be an actor, he has to look good on television, right? So I think that Trump's style of tweeting was actually very much representative of the ideal form of social media communication. Now, talking about this, you know, the difference between, you know, the forms of left-wing radicalism um, with the Occupy Wall Street, maybe the Arab Spring, and then the right-wing forms of extremism with the alt-right and, uh, and Trump, I think that despite the, the cleavages between them, what we can actually see is, uh, you know, going back to that point about, you know, Twitter revolutions, Facebook revolutions, in some ways I do think that the medium itself is the story, is important, because regardless of where we sit, on the political spectrum, what's important about the platform is that it doesn't care where we lie necessarily. It depends, right? There's a degree of, uh, of care here. But regardless of where we lie on the political spectrum, what the platform cares about is that we keep using the platform, that we continue to participate, that we continue to integrate data about ourselves, because that's the very lifeblood of the platform. So what the platform, I actually think, the form of the platform actually tells us is not something specific about a particular ideology, um, you know, liberal, conservative, or right-wing, or fascist, or whatever. I actually think that in this way, the platform teaches us about the, the, the form of capitalism, the underlying mode of production, and how it persists, despite the fact that there is um, th- this apparent, um, you know, cultural war taking place between left and right. I think that's what the what the historical form of social media actually teaches us, that we have a change here in the dominant form of thinking that is relative to the this current stage of uh, 21st century capitalism. Yeah, so that kind of sets up a lot of, I think, the theoretical foundations or background for this book. Um, moving forward, you kind of start to unpack uh, the relationship between social media use and subjectivity. And here the psychoanalysis really starts to come in. So to kind of kick things off here, you argue that social media is a place where we perform, but what sets this online performance apart from other sorts of social practices is for who and how we perform. You write, quote, in the context of social media, we see how we perform, not necessarily for our our own sense of self. We curate our identities not to satisfy our own desire, but to satisfy the desire of the other in the form of likes, shares, comments, follows, and so forth. So can you unpack the dynamics of this online performativity? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, that's, it's it's a really good question. And um, there's a few things that I think I, I need to set up before, um, before responding. So in some ways, this problem still goes back to one of the things that Frederick Jameson argued about um, postmodernism and drawing on Lacan in Lacan's um, theory of psychosis. Again, Lacan is somebody who reinterprets Freud using structural linguistics. He uses the structural linguistics of Ferdinand de Saussure, and he's influenced by the structuralist Claude Lévi-Strauss. And so for for Lacan, the way to understand subjectivity um, and the logic of uh, fantasy and enjoyment is through the prism 
of um, the structure of language or what he calls the symbolic order um, or the symbolic order that's produced as a signifying chain so that the way we understand language has to do with all of the our relationship what we say is related to all the various content the things that we don't say and drawing on Lacan what Jameson argues in his postmodernism work is that postmodernism could be understood as the the breakdown of the signifying chain so that it's very difficult to make sense of things because there's no single particular dominant narrative that people use um, that people register against to make sense of themselves and their position within society. And Zizek has kind of um, reiterated this argument in his um, 1999 book, The Ticklish Subject, where he speaks about this apparent demise of symbolic efficiency. And he connects this to this idea, the Lacanian idea of the what's called the big other. Now, the big other is a way to think about the how we produce our sense of identity through the form of language. But in producing our sense of identity through the form of language, we require in some sense the acknowledgement or the recognition of all other people um, who are using the same language. So for instance, when I use the word pencil, the only way that I can know that I make sense of the, the term pencil, the metaphor that's representing the thing, is if I have some, some sense that you or everybody else knows that I'm referring to pencil when I say the word pencil. But if there's no guarantee that other people don't have the same sense of the, of the word itself, when I say pencil, maybe you think you're thinking pen or maybe you're thinking, I don't know, laptop computer. If there's no guarantee, then we have a demise of symbolic efficiency. We have a breakdown of the signifying chain. So submedia theorists have argued that um, that this is the way to understand contemporary media, that understanding contemporary media requires thinking about how nobody believes any longer in the efficiency of the symbolic order or of the big other. And I disagree with this perspective. And I think that social media helps to show just how much people still believe in the signifying structure of the big other. So that when we're using social media, when we're producing content for social media, it's largely aimed at this anonymous big other in the form of our friends lists or our followers um, the, the networks that we produce on social media, that every time we, we, we produce content, send a tweet, post an article or a comment on Facebook, um, post a picture on Instagram, every time we do this, we're in some way trying to perform a sense of our identity for the big other. Now, one of the, one of the, maybe one of the main hitches in this is that, um, even as Zizek argues that today in postmodern capitalism, nobody believes any longer in the efficiency of the big other. But part of the problem is that even if I don't believe in the real existence of the big other, I don't know if everybody else has stopped believing in the existence or the efficiency of the big other. So in some way, even though I can say as a you know liberal, rationalist, enlightened person that, oh, I don't believe that this thing actually exists, what I invest my belief in is the 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 non-belief or the 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 belief in the other. I invest my belief in in thinking about everybody else still believes in it, so I still have to play the game 
and perform for the other because I don't know how they're going to see me if I don't keep up um, with the game. Now, I think that this is what social media algorithms have become very adept at doing, that the content that algorithms are curating to us is, in a way, helping in the, the reproduction of our feeling that this big other, even the, the, the other out there with its own false consciousness, it helps us in, in maintaining the belief that it still exists somehow there in the network. So that when I'm using social media, I'm in some sense still performing for the ignorance of the big other. Yeah, jumping right off of this. Um, oh, did you have something else? No, no, I just want to make sure that made sense. Okay, yeah. Um, so jumping right off of that, you write, uh, quote, social media is the manner in which capitalism has succeeded in reintroducing lack and scarcity into a world of instant access and abundance. Uh, and you connect this reintroduction of lack to a reintroduction of desire into contemporary subjectivity. So can you explain how social media has uh given us a sense of lack and how that works with kind of reintroducing desire into our lives? Sure. That's a great question. Um, okay. So I think the first thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the first thing to understand is that from the perspective of Lacanian psychoanalysis, lacking something or, or lack itself, a gap or a void is not something contingent, but it's something that is constitutive. It's constitutive both of subjectivity and of reality. And that part of the way that desire works is in the belief that it's only lacking, that reality is only lacking, or my own subjectivity, my own identity is only lacking, because there still is some object out there that could satisfy my desire and fill in that lack. And going back to what I said previously about fantasy, part of what fantasy is, is the scenario that we imagine that gives us a sense of how we can find the lost object that will fill in the lack, or even helps us, to, it teaches us what we think actually is the object lacking that's missing that can fill in um, uh, the gap. So if we find it, then lack will disappear. Now, so what desire is based on is the belief in the contingency of this uh, lost object. But as uh, Todd McGowan puts it, for instance, the reason why the, the object is lost is because its very existence is only being a lost object. In other words, if it's found, it's no longer a lost object, right? It's, it's very constitution isn't being lost. Now, in part of the, the process of analysis, what the analyzant is sort of comes to understand is the, the the very fact that it's impossible to fill in this lack that lack is constitutive of of my own subjectivity and of the reality in which i exist in some ways that can be freeing too if we know that um that reality is itself constitutively lacking that gives us a sense of freedom for producing materially the conditions, the structures that we need for our own emancipation and liberation. In other words, if reality was whole and complete, my freedom would be uh, would be would be barred. It would be um, it would disintegrate. It would mean that my entire existence is already preconstituted without my agency or contribution to it. Now, I think going back to that political economic understanding uh, uh, of media in a sense, the optimism of the 90s, the idea that 
with the 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 internet um there's this whole plane of abundance that i can get access to information whenever i want i can um, engage with other people whenever i want um it was the sense that in the space of the internet there's a, a sea of abundance that nothing is prohibited nothing is lacking and i think that what social media has helped to do is to show that Lack is still constitutive of what we perceived in the media sphere as being a, a sea of abundance. That um, what social media has helped to show, and also for capitalism, uh, because one way to understand capitalism too is that capitalism only persists insofar as something is missing, something is lacking. That the process of seeking out and acquire and going further and further in accumulation. Can it can only exist insofar as not everything is uh, has been produced. So the combination of the the new structure of social media to the internet, along with um, the the form of 21st century capitalism, is showing that um, what we perceived as the sea of abundance actually transforms into and reflects the constitutive lack and scarcity that really exists within the framework of our reality and our subjectivity. I hope that I hope that makes sense. Yeah, you're putting a lot on the table. Um, I kind of want to develop this uh, connection you've been alluding to, this connection between the way our subjectivity is oriented um, along the lines of uh, capitalism. So you've been kind of talking about how social media is a way of kind of aligning us and uh, it's a way where we can, a place where we can kind of produce certain forms of meaningful connection and expression. Um, but you also argue throughout the book that this has to be done under capitalism according to the logic of profit. Um, can you kind of develop the parallel between these two and why how you see them overlapping, or how maybe it would be better to say the logic of profit determines the logic of the production of meaningfulness? If if I'm phrasing that properly yeah sure um okay so so think the logic the logic of profit and capitalism and the production of meaningfulness okay um it's a tough one i know yeah i know i'm trying to (laughs) yeah sorry i just need to take a drink first okay um so I think it's important to understand if we're talking about the form of capitalism that, you know, capitalism is based first and foremost on a mechanism of constantly producing or, or seeking out ways to um, produce profit. And anything that um, develops within capitalism is based first and foremost um, on that. You know what? Just let's pause here for a second because I want to think about it. Yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is this overlap between um, uh, or this way in which meaningfulness kind of fits in within this larger kind of exploitative mechanism of profit generation. Um, maybe that's a better way to phrase it. Can you maybe speak to that or from that yeah, angle? No, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Okay, so this is it's kind of a longish answer. I think that part of it requires unpacking the general logic and dynamics of capitalism as a mode of production that is largely based on production for profit. 
And I think it's worth comparing if we think about capitalism as a mode of production based on production for profit um, and what actually is accumulated within capitalism compared to pre-capitalist societies, we might say that um, um, in previous societies, what gets accumulated is um, actual goods, actual uh, um, products. Um, we might even think, and, and I, I, you know, if if you do like a thought experiment here, we might think of going back to you know ancient ancient societies and the relationship between um, um, production and the development of technology. We might say that. For instance, right, I'm being a little bit reductive here for the sake of brevity, but for instance, in hunter-gatherer societies, we might say that um, there we have a condition where production is for immediate consumption. But at some point, technology is developed where we can actually preserve goods produced and have delayed consumption. And you can imagine here a, a kind of a social dynamic, not necessarily, but maybe political uh, dynamic where power emerges um, concerning those who have control over the um, goods that have been produced and amassed and is responsible for how to distribute um, those goods. So in capitalism, we don't have the accumulation of goods. Um, we actually have the accumulation of values, of uh, surplus values, right? And actually in capitalism, capitalism goes into crisis whenever there's too much accumulation of goods or commodities that are produced that can't be sold back for ever increasing profits. So this is a problem for capitalism. Capitalism is a mode of production that's based first and foremost on production for profit and wherever profit can't be produced, we have a crisis. Now, capitalists uh, or, you know, Marxian economists, I guess, talk about this, but capitalist economists too, that there are certain barriers um, that exists to production for profit. Uh, one of those barriers is competition, because likely in the capitalist economy, there are, you know, it's not just one person who's producing this or that commodity, but there are various different um, companies that are producing this base, same basic commodity, Coke and Pepsi, for instance, right? So that the idea is you can't just, you know, you know, invest into your business um, invest into resources, invest in labor, produce a commodity, sell it on the market, and then be satisfied and go home at the end of the day. Because your competitor is also doing the same thing, and they're competing over the same limited, finite amount of, uh, 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 of, uh, of profit that exists out there in the market. So every business, it can't just say satisfied with going home at the end of the day with what it has. It has to take some of its profit and invest back into the business and get bigger and better faster than my competitor um, because you're also at risk of the that your competitor will do the same thing as you. So competition creates a barrier to the accumulation of profit. Now, another barrier, of course, is labor. And labor is a barrier uh, in a couple of ways. Now, one of the things, and again, I'm being reductive for the sake of brevity here, um, but as Marx argues, um, labor, human labor power or commodified labor power, so that is wage labor, is a source of increasing value in commodities that are produced. Um, but if you're in a situation of competing with other businesses to increase your profits, labor can become a barrier to production in a couple of ways. One way is that 
uh, well, in a political sense, you know, when people start to realize that we as workers outnumber the boss, we can organize, get together, form as a union, make demands, more wages, more time off, more benefits, all of which cuts into the ability of the employer to accumulate more and more profit. But there's another way that labor becomes a barrier to production, and that's just the frailty of the human body, that we need to take time away from the working to eat and to sleep and hopefully sexually reproduce and so forth, you know, and that, you know increase the species, uh, maybe other forms of pleasure and enjoyment and fun that are not part of working. I always think of, you know, the famous scene in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times when the boss, you know, creates the machine for lunch so that the, the machine will feed the workers so that the worker doesn't have to stop working, right? That's the dream of, uh, of the capitalist to um, to eliminate the time that the worker takes away from work to increase the amount of value production uh, within the system. Now, again, over time, machinery has come in to substitute for the labor uh, of human workers. So that one of the ways that businesses gain an edge over competitors is by replacing workers or de-skilling workers through the introduction of machinery. And that's one of the ways that's one of the ways that we see machinery and technology come into the production process. Now it's a much longer discussion about the way that Marx argues how increasing um, um, the amount of technology in production actually lowers the amount of value being produced and we end up in a crisis um, of capitalism um, where where there's a, a decline in the relative amount of value that's being produced. But one way to think about the historical moment of social media, where so much of the value that's produced by the companies has to do with the content that comes from users, that user content, user-generated content, is actually one of the main sources of revenue for social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. When they amass data from users, this gets commodified and transformed into the very uh, uh, source of profit and revenue generation for the platform. So this is another reason why it's, it's imperative for social media platforms to keep us locked in, to keep us engaged, to keep us using constantly uh, the platform itself. And one of the ways it does this, to finally cut to the chase here, is by producing situations of meaningfulness for us on the platform that we have to in some ways find the, the platform meaningful so that we'll continue to engage in it, to use it, to participate in it. And the way that, that algorithmic media learns to curate content to us, and it doesn't always have to be content that we agree with. In fact, quite often we can be uh, lured in through the meaningfulness of content that we disagree with. I think that many people have probably seen the famous uh, cartoon uh, uh, comic strip you know, image of the stick figure. One person is um, typing away at the computer and then presumably the partner comes in the background and says, um, honey, come to bed. And the stick figure says, I can't, somebody's wrong on the internet, right? I think many of us know the situation that sometimes meaningfulness is not just about content that we agree with, Sometimes it can be content that we disagree with, and we end up in these stupid little Twitter feuds, these Twitter debates that just keep us you know, active and participating for longer and longer and longer and longer time. Of course, this is good for the platform 
And it shows why, you know, specific ideologies of left, right, conservative, liberal, what have you, aren't as important as just the, the, the raw form of the platform that keeps producing meaningful situations for us so that we keep contributing and participating. Now, I want to add just a quick comment about this, because there's a common idea in the political economy of communication, the idea of the audience commodity. And this goes back to some early political economic work in television studies. The famous Canadian um, political economist of communication, Dallas Smythe, argued that not only so when we, we were talking about, you know, regular commercial television, network television, so not, you know, specialty cable channels, but old style, regular bunny ear um, network television, <clears throat> that the main source of revenue for television stations is the, um, the actual um, advertising revenue that comes in. So that what Smythe argues, though, is that what television stations produce are not TV shows for audiences. What they actually produce are audiences themselves as certain sets of demographics that they can bundle up and sell to the advertiser. And what the advertiser is buying is a certain amount of time of the audience's attention. So the idea of the audience commodity is that the audience, the bundled up audience, is the main commodity that the television station is producing. But Smythe adds to this, and he actually argues that not audiences not are not only um, the commodity, audiences are also working to produce themselves as a commodity by learning, you know, which products to buy, which life lifestyles to live, and so forth. And this idea has translated into a lot of um, critical social media studies where people argue that we are now a prosumer commodity, that we produce content at the same time that we consume content. And by doing this, we're working to um, transform ourselves into this uh, internet uh, prosumer commodity. But I kind of disagree with this formulation, specifically within the context of the Marxist critique of exploitation within capitalism, which argues that not just free labor produces value, but specifically wage labor um, produces surplus value within capitalism. And insofar as we are users um, of social media, we're not necessarily working or being exploited in the capitalist sense of exploitation and the production of surplus value. Surplus value, according to Marx, can only be produced insofar as there is wage labor at some point within the process. And I think in some ways, so the wage labor here would be the people that work for Facebook or Twitter, um, actually producing the platform, uh, the coding, writing the algorithm, and so forth. But if I can flip this around in a different way, Part of what I want to argue with the book is that social media teaches us um, not just something about um, uh, or, uh, about uh, social media itself, but actually teaches us something more broadly about the structure and form of contemporary neoliberal capitalism. And one of the things that is specific to neoliberal capitalism is that neoliberalism as a discourse tries to encourage everyone to think of themselves as little businesses of one, an entrepreneur of the self so that when we are are consuming when we're buying things we have to think of these acts of consumption as actually an investment 
into our business of one. It's an investment into our human capital. And the idea is the more you invest in your human capital, the more you invest in your little business of one, the more you'll you'll get back as uh, revenue, as income, right? And I mean, it's kind of odd to frame it this way because if you frame it this way, your boss start to look starts to look like your client. You're a business of one, and your boss who is paying you for a service is now your customer, now your client. Now, social media kind of helps out uh, in this way, in the sense that we can use social media. That if we think about it, um, you know, in, industriously as little entrepreneurs of one we can start to think about how we can use social media as a way to self-advertise, to market ourselves, to uh, manage our reputation on social media. So I think that if we think about, if we look at social media, not as exploiting us just as users, but how it contributes to the overall structure of neoliberal capitalist society, we can see how it actually tells us something, not necessarily just about social media, but actually about the way that the larger context of neoliberal neoliberal capitalism exploits us as workers by encouraging us to spend all time as building our reputation as the mechanism by which we can procure ever-increasing incomes. So I, it's a lot there, and I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, um, I kind of want to jump off of that a little bit and work in this direction of kind of the construction of a self. Um, And I want to bring up, you talk about the film Gone Girl to talk about the ways, we've talked about how we kind of have to perform in certain ways, um, put on a certain appearance. But often when people talk about this, people talk about um, performing on social media, but they talk about it in a way where they think it's covering up the real you. Like there's some uh, underlying truth and appearance is really just an illusion we need to get past. But in your reading of Gone Girl and then more broadly social media, you argue that appearance is much more central here. It plays a much more important role than just a pure illusion. Um, So can you maybe uh, unpack that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, first of all, I think that Gone Girl is a, is a brilliant film. I think that um, it, it's, it's a, it, it, to me, it's a useful text that tells us very much on a meta level the way the logic of appearances actually works not just in forms of ideological duping, but also in the way that the logic of appearance is central to practices of resistance. I think that it is typical when we talk about the problem of ideology that we think about it as there's a a kind of a superficial level of representation that is hiding things that is masking things that is you know duping us in some way and that there's some kind of real reality below the surface of the ideological representation and i think that i mean this kind of goes hand in hand with again that idea about the, the breakdown of the signifying chain or the demise of symbolic efficiency, where apparently, you know, we live in a post-ideological society where no longer, you know, it's just ideology that is duping us. We all know the reality of the situation. We are all realists. We are all rationalists and that we don't have this level of uh, ideological uh, representation anymore. And I, I mean, a good example might be even somebody like Noam Chomsky, I think that if you looked at not just his um, um, media work, but even his arguments about um, uh, universal grammar, I mean, and I love even 
thinking about this, you know, in his debate with Michel Foucault and uh, um, Chomsky's political anarchism. I think that one of the things you see, the absolute rationalism of somebody like uh, Chomsky, is he tends to have this sense that he believes that if only the people knew the truth, right? If you just tell people the truth about the way that they're being exploited, about the way that they're being oppressed, right? If you get rid of all the illusions and just tell people the truth, then spontaneously we will organize, we will act, we will try to change things, right? The problem for him, and you see this in his media work with uh, Edward uh, Herman, um, you know, the propaganda model um, that, they, that they talk about, manufacturing consent. The idea is that there's these various layers of filtration, right, in the media. The media filters out the truth. And what we have to do is actually regain this knowledge of fact, fact and truth, and then people will work to change and transform um, the way things are. I think that this is wrong. I think that the problem is not that people are lacking truth. I think that the problem is people are lacking the the narrative and the symbolic framework by which we actually make sense of the of facts themselves. That we have that facts and truth have to be given an order, have to be given a structure, have to be given a narrative. In other words, the level of appearances can have an impact on the reality that the correct level of appearance, that the correct interpretation is what's required to then make a change in the reality. And I think this is something that Gone Girl really helps us to see, that it's not by, you know, what the, the hero of the film, what she shows is, yeah, you know, the, you know her husband, he's a dirtbag, he's an asshole, he, um, uh, uh, um, uh, he's a philanderer, like he's, you know, he's, he's not a great guy. He made himself look like a great guy to other people. But what she actually does by creating a, uh, a fiction, right, by creating a, a, a false narrative of, um, you know, first of her murder and then of, um, you know, uh, she, she um, is kidnapped, right? But through the level of the appearance, through the level of creating a right, the, the right um, narrative, she's able to have an impact and change the way in which the characters around her react. So that by the end of the film, we see that it's by the correct portrayal representation to the face of the, of the news media that she's able to more powerfully control the, the, the jerky uh, 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 Ben Affleck uh, husband, right? So I, what I like about Gone Girl is that it actually shows us that, and in some ways we can even think about how it's actually an act of resistance of, you know, you know, struggling resistance. I think, you know, the way that like the, the teenager will try to argue with their parents, you know, to resist the parents that you think you're resisting the ideology of the parents. It's actually in that form of resistance that ideology sometimes holds us much more strongly. That when we think that we are right, that when we think that we are outside of ideology, that's when it has a much stronger hold on us. But one of the things we can see in Gone Girl is that it's actually by creating a symbolic fiction that we can have much more impact on the structure of reality than in our apparent attempts to resist the ideological reality that we're presented with. So bringing together a few threads that we've been developing, you talk about the uh, subject's performance of a self within a signifying chain. So this ties together a lot of what we've been developing with 
um, online performativity, the idea of an entrepreneur of one, the importance of appearances and performing certain appearances. Um, but it also introduces another aspect this kind of split between the subject and the self. Um, and it brings in this kind of more layered understanding of subjectivity under both late capitalism and on social media. So I'm wondering if you could maybe kind of unpack that dynamic for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. Thanks. That's okay. That's a really good question. Um, I think the best way to answer it is to go back to, again, Althusser's theory of ideology and subjectivity. For Althusser, subject is a category of ideology. Remember, ideology interpolates individuals as subjects. And I think that in much critical theory, this is the common understanding, that subject is a product of ideology. But as somebody like Mladen Dolar argues, for Lacan, against Althusser, subject is not a category of ideology, but is actually a category of the failure of ideology. So that subject emerges where ideology fails. So part of what I'm trying to do in distinguishing the category of subject from the category of a self is trying to maintain a space by which we can actually think of a form of subjectivity that breaks through ideology in order to uh, come to some kind of uh, awareness of the freedom that we have to break out of or, or uh, create conditions of our own freedom, of our own emancipation. So for me, when I use the idea of a self, a capital S self, I'm thinking about the self as more or less what Althusser means when he says the ideology interpolates individuals as subjects. Uh, and again, I want to do this because I, I would want to argue that there is still a possibility for subject to be able to enact and to create new historical conditions and structures of freedom. But self is something more along the lines with the, the metaphor that I associate to myself, the construction of my profile page, for instance, on a social media platform, that is the performance and the representation of myself to the symbolic big other out there or to the network of other users, friends, list, followers, and so forth that I'm performing my identity for in the space of social media um, and the platform more generally. So, you know, even within the language of uh, the semiotic language that Lacan uses, self is something like the signifier that I, uh, I, um, I alienate myself into as part of the production of my identity for the symbolic out there. So this is why I distinguish between subject and self in this way. Subject for me is a way of understanding the breakdown of ideology and where I can enact my own freedom, whereas self is the ideological form of identity that we, you know, we can see being performed on social media. Yeah, moving on to the last chapter, you talk about uh, dating apps, which for all kinds of personal reasons was both cathartic and anxiety-inducing to read about. Um, but... I think the core of the argument that you bring forward in this chapter is the kind of binary logic of swiping. I mean, to this effect, you bring in this idea, the tyranny of rational choice. So this not only brings forward uh, the idea of the self that you have to create a profile and kind of perform in a certain way, um, but it also in 
uh, choosing to swipe right or left, you kind of have to uh, feed into a certain algorithm, algorithmic structure. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about how our activity on these apps kind of is forced down into these very particular pathways and how that um, works with uh, things like desire, for example. Sure. So I mean, one of the, I, I really think that the, the form of the, you know, so Tinder, let's say, right. So the, the dating apps, that's uh, applying the swiping logic, right? So you swipe one way and that's one choice and you swipe another way and that's another choice. What I think that it helps do or show is when we, I think that it kind of goes beyond the typical understanding of binary logic. When we think of binary logic, I think many, you know, in popular discourse, we're thinking about, you know, a choice between two affirmative, two positive um, options, right? So for instance, the gender binary of masculine and feminine as two affirmative, two positive options um, to choose. But I think that if we understand binary logic, um, even in the sense of you know binary coding, of coding in the form of the one and the zero, coding in the form of the affirmative versus the negative. So affirmation and negation. I think that it helps us to rethink how we understand binary logic, even in a dialectical sense of what we assert, but then the position that contradicts the assertion that we're making or what negates the choice that we're making. And what I kind of try to do is link this up with some of the the, the formative, the foundational um, conceptions of subjective of subjectivization um, in the Lacanian paradigm, so that the moment of becoming a subject is this moment of choosing, selecting a signifier, selecting an identity that forms the identity that I that I have, and in some ways, this choice of identity that I have is reflected in you know performing myself for the other, maybe in the form of the parent or whomever. But every act of affirming an identity, every act of choice is at the same time, the negation of all of the various other choices not chosen. So I choose this one option, but, but choosing one option negates all of the various other choices that I didn't choose. And as I understand it, this is a way to think about, on the one hand, the form of fantasy, but also the form of desire in the sense that desire is formed in all those objects lost that I didn't choose. And the fantasy is this scenario, oh, if I didn't have to choose, if I wasn't forced to choose this other option, I could have all of these other various choices available to me. So that the swiping logic is part of this, you know, I tie it into this foundational form of how we become subjectivized, that I have to initially make a single choice, I choose this one option, but then... I negate all the various other choices, all these various other options that I didn't choose. So it's the form of the swiping logic that then ties into the, the backend form of um, algorithmic coding in the binary logic of the ones and zeros that I think helps us to understand something much more profound about the binary logic at the heart of subjectivization insofar as not, not binary again in the sense of you know the gender binary, but binary in the sense of I affirm an identity while at the same time, simultaneously, I'm negating all the various other options that are present. So for me, the swiping logic is it helps to teach us about this uh, foundational form of subjectivity. 
Yeah, moving to the end of the chapter, um, and this goes back a bit to what you were talking about, um, subjectivity as a point where interpolation kind of breaks down. You talk about love as something that uh, escapes or does not fit into the kind of rational schema of choices that these apps give us. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the significance of love as kind of a way of maybe a, a starting place of resistance against uh, the way these apps work to kind of guide us down a very narrow preset path and what yeah. we can kind of learn from that. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing too, right? Because I mean, dating apps, the way that they sell themselves is, you know, find love, find love. But I think, I actually think that part of the difficulty is that, especially in neoliberal capitalism, where we are all encouraged to, you know, it's, it's a very selfish society where it's all about the individual, about the I, about pursuing my own desire, right? And one way to understand the way that enjoyment and desire work from the Lacanian perspective is that I only enjoy insofar as I, I can transgress some form of prohibition, something that's telling me, no, you cannot have this thing. You know, it's like the kid with the cookie jar. I want it, the more I'm not allowed to have it, right? So fantasy is kind of this fantasy of pursuing the thing that I'm not allowed to have, or that there's this ideal that I can never get at, and I keep trying to pursue and get it. Now, part of the way that it works, you know, here, you know, going back to the logic of lack and scarcity, is that if I never get it, I can keep pursuing it, right? If I never get love, I can keep pursuing love. Or if I don't have the sexual fantasy that I desire, I keep pursuing it, right? And, you know, you can think about, you know, the the reason why people, you know, fall into, I mean, not, again, I'm being reductive here, right, for the sake of brevity, but why people fall into, you know, problems of having, you know, various different affairs and sexual, you know, escapades and whatever, because constantly trying to transgress and pursue and find this lost object of desire. But isn't love not this, you know, magnificent fantasy of the thing that I can never have. In some ways, love is the radical act of choosing our own limit. That when I choose this specific partner, right, that I choose this person because there's something about choosing and affirming my own limit that I actually find more enjoyment and more freedom in doing this, right? That in choosing the, the limit, I start to realize that my enjoyment is formed not in what exists beyond the limit, but my enjoyment is actually found in the fantasy itself that I get from a choosing and affirming my own limit. So love here is really something very radical when we realize that we have the freedom to impose our own limits. That limits, and, and, and even going back to that initial you know, moment of choice and subjectivization, when I choose my identity, and then all the other choices negated for my fantasy, we start to realize that I am responsible from the get-go for choosing and affirming my limits. And when you come to this point through the form of love, you start to realize that I, I, I take responsibility. I am the one. Nobody else did it for me. Nobody else is stopping me from getting the thing. I'm the one who does it, right? I choose and I affirm my own limit. And by choosing the, you know, the love relationship, this, you know, then I start to realize it's the moment of absolute freedom. It's the moment when I realize that I'm the one who's responsible for the production of my limit, as well as for the enjoyment found in the fantasy. So this is what I mean here by love as a, as a, as a radical uh, uh, formation. 
Yeah, that brings us uh, more or less to the end of the book. So I want to ask in closing, so you've been talking about um, social media as a way of understanding the kind of tensions, antagonisms, and contradictions of late capitalism and how it uh, rewires our subjectivity and interpolates us uh, into these kind of exploitative mechanisms. But I also want to point out that this book is not like an anti-social media-esque Um, screed, uh, but instead you want us to take the social aspect of social media a bit more seriously than we really can under late capitalist forms of social media. So we've been thinking about social media as a way of understanding mechanisms of exploitation. How does thinking about social media help us also imagine what a more emancipated society would look like? How can we make the metaphor more productive rather than just critical. So I think that everything that we're, we say spontaneously that's critical of social media, I don't think it would be possible without the concept of social media itself. In other words, what I'm trying to perform here, I think, is an imminent critique of social media. That is taking the very concept, taking the very idea of social media itself as the, the, the mechanism of measuring and evaluating how well actual social media accomplishes what we all spontaneously imagine social media should be doing. In other words, the, the term social media, the concept of social media, we imagine as all those ideals of being social, being democratic, engaging people openly and honestly, Uh, within the society, having a thriving public sphere. This is, I think, what we imagine when we talk about the concept of social media. And it's only against the concept of social media, this ideal of social media, it's only against this concept that we can then understand and critique the failures to reach and achieve the ideal in the concept of social media itself. So my argument here is not to abandon social media as the metaphor for our media, I think that we have to hold on to maintain rather than finding, you know, some other kind of way to describe our a free media, right? I think that there's so often this drive, this push to find new alternative concepts, alternative media as a way to solve the problem. No, I think that we have to stick to the social media metaphor because it's only against the concept of social media that we can understand the various failures and betrayals of the concept of social media. And for me, it's through this mechanism, through this measure, that we understand not only contradictions within social media and uh, our algorithmic media and technology itself, but actually opens up an understanding to really understand the contradictions and the forms of exploitation and power within 21st century capitalism. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Sure. So um, I, I'm so what I'm working on now, it kind of comes out of the some of the work I did on this project. I subtitled this book, A New Structuralist um, um, Theory of Social Media. And part of what I was trying to do there was to develop an idea, a, a return to structuralism opposed to let's say, new forms of new materialism and post-humanism. And out of the work that I did in, in the book, and, and I don't go into it as much in this book, and it's kind of part of the framing of my, my thesis at the beginning of the book, 
part of what I what I'm doing here is I'm trying to think against posthumanism, trying to think the revival of a new theory of universal and dialectical humanism. So I'm thinking about this very much in the context of popular Anthropocene narrative, the idea that climate change is purely anthropogenic, that it's the product of specifically a collective uh, humanity. Whereas with thinkers like um, Jason W. Moore and the idea of the capitalocene, trying to argue that climate change are, are worries about um, rising uh, artificial intelligence and automation and production. Now, this is not a problem of an anthropocene, it's rather the problem of a capitalocene. The capitalism and a capitalist ecology is our problem, and that the only way that we can really think about whatever emancipatory potentials exist is to develop a new conception of a humanism that is dialectical as well as universal. In other words, part of the critique of humanism has been historically that it is exclusive, that it is Eurocentric, that it is fellow-centric. I want to argue that a humanism worth its name is it must be universal in the sense that there's no emancipation unless it is universal emancipation. And then the other part of it too, and I draw on somebody like Edward Said, is that just as I was arguing with social media that we shouldn't abandon the concept of social media, that social media is the means of measuring the failure of social media, I think the same is true with humanism, that it's only against a concept of a universal humanism that we can understand the betrayals of humanism and various different projects of liberalism, capitalism um, today, so that it's only through the development of a category of uh, universal humanism that we can really start to think about um, emancipatory politics in the context of the so-called Anthropocene, as well as in the um, um, the development of uh, new forms of digital automation and artificial intelligence in 21st century uh, uh, 21st century capitalism. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot to work with. So Matthew Flissfetter, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.